Let us turn to 1 John chapter 2. Remember, we're looking at an epistle written probably in the 90s, toward the end of the first century. Old John is writing to those he calls my little children. When you get to be 90, you can call everybody your kids. And he does. But it's a term of affection for the church. He loves the people he's pastoring. Remember, he's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled because he was faithful to the gospel. So he got, he did, they didn't martyr him like they did all the other disciples. They just exiled him. And from Patmos, he could see across the Aegean Sea. He could see the churches that he was pastoring. And he wrote to them. <clears throat> and that's how he continued to pastor them. So obviously, he's apart from them. He's feeling deeply for them. He's aware of some things that are that are dividing them, that are threatening their integrity. And any of you who are in church leadership, you're very aware of the things that threaten the integrity of the people you love. Whether it's your Sunday school class or a small group or some of you pastoring churches, you have a deep affection for them. And when something comes in to threaten their relationship with Christ or certainly their salvation, you're all over it. John was all over it. So he writes to them, uh, and he tells us why, of course, at the end of this letter. He says, I'm writing to those of you who know Christ so that you may know that you have uh, eternal life. So it's, it's a letter about assurance, but at the same time we've seen the, the sword cuts in two ways. First of all, it assures Christians, but it also divides out those who are not Christians. And John wants to make clear to them that they're being taught some stuff that's not accurate, and it could threaten their souls. And so at the same time that he says... These things are true about you, and this should assure that you that you belong to Jesus Christ. At the same time, those who don't have these things are not true Christian teachers. So he's got two concerns. One is to assure the church, and the other is to make crystal clear what is a real Christian. We need to do that today as well, as we're going to see as we go through this. Now, you remember that John, he has several tests, but fundamentally they fall into three categories. Number one is the doctrinal test. Uh, there's a certain line that has to be crossed in your belief system in order to be a Christian. There's a line that you can cross that ushers you right out the door of the Christian church. So there is a doctrinal boundary. There are some essentials doctrinally to being a real Christian. Secondly, we've seen that there are ethical boundaries. That a real Christian is one who's not perfect... Uh, which means none of us are disqualified, but we live repentantly. We're always moving toward the mark. And so when we fail, we confess our sins, and we not only confess them, but we repent of them. We turn. We get back in the light. And that's what it means to walk in the light, that we have the light of the Word of God shed upon our pathway so that when we are wrong, we can readily be corrected. That's the Christian lifestyle. It's walking in the light. It's an ethical lifestyle. Don't tell me that you're a believer when you walk in the darkness. John says you're a liar. Thirdly is the relational or social test, and that is that if you've really been converted, there is a change of heart toward God's people. We had all kinds of thoughts about God's people before we were converted. I was converted as an adult, so I remember those thoughts. And I remember wanting to avoid them unless it was to do business with them. But I didn't want to have any deep conversations with those people. Uh, and I didn't really want to go to the beach with them either. Uh, they, they, weren't, they just weren't my ilk. When you get converted, they become your ilk. They become your family. And you see them that way. And 
not just because you like them as individuals. It's not as though you're, you know, you're picking the cream of the crop when you go in the church. You know, you, you love the church in general. Anyone who's been converted because they are converted. They have the same DNA you have. They're, you're in the same family. So these three tests, the doctrinal, the ethical, and the relational. We've seen in John's epistle that it's not linear like one of Paul's or even Peter's epistles. It's more like a spiral staircase. And so we're, we're at the end of the first of three major sermons or exhortations that John gives. And he will include all three tests and then he'll start again and he'll take us a little higher as we go up the spiral staircase. So that's the structure of John's epistle. We're at the end of this first major exhortation that began with chapter 1, verse 5. So let's look now. He's going to address the doctrinal test. This is his um, iteration of the doctrinal test in the first, the first floor, the first cycle of the spiral staircase. That's where we are. We're, we're coming to the end of the first floor. Okay, let's look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge." I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Just as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you about in Him. Okay, first of all, we're, we're going to notice uh, in uh, these first two verses that Antichrists will come in the last days. Paul predicts the major Antichrist who would come, first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we're told that many antichrists will come. Now, what is an antichrist? Well, an antichrist would, would be anyone who is teaching devilish doctrines. You can look at the footnote in your ESV study Bible, and you'll see that uh, the commentators there refer to John 17, 5, where Jesus prays uh, against the evil one in his teaching. An antichrist are those who actually present devilish doctrines. Uh, and ultimately, they're ones who are putting something in the place of Christ. Ante means to be in the place of and then Christ. So they're substituting something for Christ. They're substituting, substituting something for essential Christian doctrine. 
Now, the test for us will be how do we decide what's essential Christian doctrine? And we'll try to dissect that a little bit this morning. But it's important for every one of us to have the mind of Christ, to think thoughts after Him, to know what is essential in your parenting. It's important that you know the difference between one of your little preferences or one of your little family traditions on the one hand, and on the other hand, something that threatens the very well-being of your child. You should know the difference. If you emphasize everything, you emphasize nothing. All you are is a complainer. So you have to know what it is you'll put your life on the line for. Every Christian should be seeking that to understand what are the essentials that I would give my life for. Would I give my life for baptism? Well, probably not. But would I give my life for the deity of Christ? Absolutely. And there are many things in between. So an antichrist is someone who comes teaching something that is not according to the apostles' doctrine, that takes someone away from their fellowship with Jesus Christ and ultimately, as we're going to see, threatens their eternal life. And there are many of them. Let me just ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Here the Apostle Paul is actually saying goodbye to the Ephesians. In particular, he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he tells them they're not going to see him again. So it's a very tearful departing. And uh, he, uh, he gives this grand farewell speech. But I want us to look at and see, see what he says uh, about this matter. These famous verses, uh, start with verse 28. He has told them how he didn't shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God in verse 27. And then in verse 28, this is page 2130 in your study Bible. He says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, he's talking about elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, that is to confront, everyone with tears. So you see, the apostle says there's no question about it, you Ephesian elders. You're going to have heretics. You're going to have antichrists who will rise up among the session and they will teach doctrines that will divide off the sheep from the flock and more essentially divide the sheep from the shepherd himself. And he said, I'm giving you my example. I, I didn't stop confronting these people and pleading with the sheep, for three years, day and night with tears. That's the kind of passion that must be engaged. And what you'll find, of course, is if you're going to make these doctrinal distinctions in your own mind, and you're going to stand up and live by them, really live by them as a man, then you're going to find yourself in confrontations. They don't have to be ugly confrontations, but they may be tearful, and they will be confrontations, and there's no way to avoid it. It's kind of like a parent saying, you know, I want a peaceful household, and I'm, I'm going to discipline my children, but I'm never going to confront them or make them upset. 
Well, then you're not just not going to be a parent. You're not going to be a good one. Uh, a permissive parent leads to the destruction of their own child. And so it is in your life. when If you don't have the knowledge of what is essential, and then you don't have the passionate commitment to live up to it, then everyone under your care will suffer immensely. So here we have, John is saying that children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So notice when they're coming. A, the last days are now. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, 9, 11, so on, you get this idea of the last days. Daniel predicts the last days. And unfortunately, so many Bible students think of the last days as this sort of critical last, you know, seven years or three and a half years or whatever it is before Christ comes where evil is intensified. That's not what Daniel meant and it's certainly not what the apostles meant because you get it over and over again. Think about Hebrews chapter 1 where the writer of Hebrews says, you know, in the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times in many ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. So when are the last days? It's when God spoke to us through His Son. That means from the first advent to the second advent. So from the birth of Jesus until the second coming of Jesus, these are the last days. We are in the last days. The last days are characterized by... The old era being here, the old world, and at the same time, the new era has come by the Spirit. So we're living between the ages, and that leads to a lot of, of our conflicts and frustrations. That's the very nature of the last days. It's, it's like when, when uh, you know, at this, about this time of the morning you go out and it's dark. You can, you can feel the darkness, and yet the dawn is beginning to take place. And you can see before the sun even shows herself to us, you, you can begin to feel its rays. And that's the way that, that's the, that's typical of the day in which we live. These are the last days. You can feel around the edge of, of history. That's been for 2,000 years, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And he says, in these last days, this, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists will come. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, this is Paul's last letter that we have. It's his kind of signing off to Timothy to hand the baton to him. And he says, in the last days you'll have this. Antichrist, Timothy, I know you don't like to confront people. I know it gets your stomach upset. I know you're a nervous, shy man. But look, you've got to stand up, he says to Timothy. That's the Wilson translation. But he's saying these last days bring this kind of intensity and this kind of unfaithfulness doctrinally. Now look at verse 19, B, the Antichrist will leave believing churches. Eventually they will leave. Why will they leave? Because real believing churches will not tolerate them, will not tolerate their doctrine, and they eventually leave. So just like a self-disciplined life, then you know, what is not in that discipline has to leave the self-disciplined life, like a disciplined family. If your 18-year-old son wants to bring in his mistresses and stack the liquor cabinet and have at it any time he wants to, you eventually say, that's not just not going to cut it around here. We don't, we don't believe in living life like that. So he leaves. You let him leave. So Antichrist will eventually leave healthy churches. So if you have a, a Bishop John Shelby Spong, who was a bishop in your 
church for years, then that should tell you something. You have an unhealthy church. He didn't leave. The Antichrist stayed in the church. So what we have to say is that if you have a healthy local church, if you have a healthy denomination, the Antichrist will eventually leave. And this is how you know who they are. They leave over these things. And and John says, look, these were your friends. Some of them were really cool dudes. Some of them were successful in business. Some of them may have been your legal counsel. It may be people you depend upon. And you don't want them to leave. These are people that are valuable to you. He says, look, the Antichrist will eventually leave healthy churches. And they left us, and here's why. They were never of us. They were never really a member of your family. Now, let's just stop here just a minute. What he's saying is that just because someone was baptized in your church, just because someone stood up and took membership vows in your Presbyterian church doesn't mean they're necessarily converted. I mean, Balaam's ass can speak the word of God. Uh, so you can have, you have all kinds of hypocrites who are really good. That, that in fact, some of them are self-deceived. They don't even know they're not the real thing. They think they're the real thing, which means they think you're just as phony as they are. And they think this whole thing is phony. So they join something that they think is a little phony, but it, it's working for them and it seems to be working for you. They become part of it. And eventually, this doctrinal division comes in and they find, I'm really uncomfortable here with these people who believe these things. And they leave. And you just need to recognize that happens over and over and over again. And if you're unwilling for that to happen in your affiliation where you are, then you're going to have an unhealthy church. I mean, you know, there's nothing I hate worse than having to throw up. You Don't you hate to throw up? The only thing worse is to consider, what if you kept all that stuff inside of you? You know, it needs to get out. You know, that's the reason you threw up, because God made our system in such a way that it rejects things that need to get out. So, yeah, it's painful to throw up. It's painful to, to throw somebody out. It's painful to see them walk away, but they will. So what John is doing as an old man, he's saying, listen, young man, you have to be strengthened in the Lord and realize that this is going to happen when you walk with Him. So Antichrist will leave believing churches. Now, uh, you can see this even in our own history. Certainly in the 2,000-year history of the church, you see all kinds of heresies that have split the church and where churches have had to tackle new issues. And we need to be really careful here that we know the difference between a heresy and a denominational difference. And then we're not trying to kick people out of our churches because we're discussing debatable things. For example, on one hand, you have the issue of tithing. Some of you believe, as I do, that the Bible lays out the tithe as a minimum gift for a follower of Christ. Others of you would say, you know, I just don't see it affirmed in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 23, 23. But still, that could be Jesus referring to an Old Testament. uh, And and Wilson, I hear all your interpretations of of Malachi chapter 3, but I just, I don't see it. Well, fine. I don't think that's, we consider that a Christian heresy. I just think you're wrong. Uh, You you and I can be wrong. Uh, And let me tell you, somebody's wrong about baptism. About half of you. Yeah, somebody's wrong, right? We can't all be right because we we disagree with each other. But we're not kicking each other out of churches, I hope. 
if you kick somebody out of your church because they don't believe that, I think you've, you've really crossed the line. You're not being inclusive. So we're both ex- inclusive and exclusive. We're both at the same time. We include everybody we can legitimately include because we love the brethren. We also stand for those outer boundaries beyond which one cannot go. And you must do both. So we need to know the difference. Are we arguing about predestination or tithing or baptism? Or are we arguing about the deity of Christ and the bodily resurrection? And so when you get over to these things, these are what we call essentials. And when someone disagrees with an essential, what John is saying, you've got to know the difference. They've stepped outside the boundaries of the Christian faith. So that's the reason that Mormons have created a new movement. They crossed the boundary. Christian science crossed the boundary. If you don't know how they crossed the boundary, email me, I'll let you know. They crossed the boundary of essentials. I would say that the so-called liberal Protestant church has crossed the boundary. They've, they've basically, many of them have denied the, the miraculous supernatural elements of the faith. That's what liberalism basically means. It's a secularizing movement that tends to be at least very suspicious of anything miraculous. Isaiah couldn't possibly have written about something that's going to happen 100 years later. So Isaiah must have three different authors. It's just anti-supernaturalism. Or Jesus' resurrection is kind of an Easter idea. Just like the flowers come up every spring, we just get happy in the spring. And that's what resurrection is all about. They just cross the line. And John says they're, they left us because they're not of us. They're not, they don't have, hold to Christian doctrine. They have no grounds for assurance of their faith. They believe in a myth, which is ironic because they believe that the evangelical gospel is a myth. But they're the ones who believe in a myth. And it's a different religion. That's the reason that uh, Machen in, in the 1930s wrote a book called Liberalism and Christianity. The reason is they're two different religions. So there are certain things that you hold to that push you out of the faith. Now there are these doctrines, I would call them in the middle, that really get my attention. But I don't think that we dismiss people from our fellowship. For example, someone who says, you know, I just don't believe the Bible is really... Uh, inerrant, or I don't believe the Bible is, is the sole authority. Well, the problem there is that if you've been around for a while, you know that's likely to lead to an eventual heresy where they're walking out the door. Uh, it, it's, if you're in a healthy fellowship and you're thinking that way, pretty soon you're going to reject the whole kit and caboodle. That's what I've noticed. But in that moment, on that doctrine, that person's not kicked out. So here's a very serious doctrine that catches our attention as, as spiritual caregivers, but they haven't yet crossed the line. The problem is they're getting really close. So you have to know the difference. What, what is debatable, and we can just laugh about it? What is serious doctrine where they're walking on the edge of the precipice? And why would you walk out here? You, need to get, you can enjoy the scene, but walk back over here. Why would you walk on the precipice? So when kids get near the precipice, I get nervous as a pastor, but they haven't fallen off. We need to know where those divisions are, and where it is is where you have brought in an antichrist. You've brought in another way of salvation. Pretty soon, if you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, you're going to say, well, you know, it's kind of like the Quran. 
And then pretty soon you're thinking of religious books as all being generally equivalent, even though they disagree with each other and are mutually exclusive. But you're going to start thinking that way. And then when you start thinking that way, you're going to think, you know, a serious Muslim, a serious Jew, certainly has as much right to salvation as I do. And, of course, the answer is that's correct. Neither of you has any right to salvation. Uh, but the Christian realizes, because he believes in the Bible as the Word of God, exactly what it says, that we are all deserving of the wrath of God. And there's only one escape, and that is if God sends a sacrifice for us. So you can see how once you start questioning the Bible, it's usually not long until you question the unique way of salvation that's offered only in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross. And then, of course, your eternal life is at stake. That's the reason that heresies are so damnable. It's because they lead people away from Christ and away from eternal life. That's the big deal. That's the reason we get passionate. It's because of our love for our neighbor. We want to be sure they get the pure saving truth that gets them home safely. So the Antichrist will leave believing churches, which means that believing churches have antichrists in them. And you say, well, that's just so discouraging. Well, I just told you a moment ago, we're living between the ages. Come on now, buck up. You know, you're not home yet. You're fighting the battle. Let's fight it. And realize that if you have a warm and welcoming church and you do the best you can to teach people before they come in, some will still come in who will rise up, says Paul, and they will oppose the very core of what you're teaching. And you'll see them go another way, and it will be sad. So there's our warning. Now, secondly, let's look at verses 20 through 23. And we see that believers will stand firm in the last days. So here's a test. A test for you to know you belong to the Lord is that you do wholeheartedly embrace the Christian doctrine, that is, that God the second person of the Trinity has come to earth in the womb of a virgin, has been born God-man, fully God, fully man. You embrace that. You're grateful for it, and you realize that's the only way you could be saved. It's if God rescued us to that degree, sending Himself, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh. And you embrace that and hold on to it as your only salvation. Now, I'm telling you, you're a Christian. That's what John's saying. But at the same time, he's saying, look, when that happens to you, you will stand firm. Number one, of course, just logically you realize there's no other way to be saved. But secondly, he goes into a very important Christian doctrine, a very important truth. Our faith is in what Christ has done for us. It's also in what Christ does in us. Our faith is in what took place at Calvary's cross in the empty tomb. But we also believe in what God is doing in us right now and what He does for us right now when we become Christian men. He sends His Spirit to take up residence in us. We're Spirit-filled men. We're men from another planet. (laughs) We have not only an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, but we have an alien power and an alien presence in our lives. There are two great mysteries of the Christian faith. One is the substitutionary atonement of Christ in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. That's a a mystery that we'll spend eternity researching and delighting in. The second mystery is that God takes up residence in the soul of a man. Now let's see how, how John puts it. 
He says, but you, verse 20, have the anointing. So A, they have the anointing. You have been anointed by the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God Himself. And you all, actually that's a southern thing there, y'all have knowledge. Now, what does it mean to be anointed? Well, you know that in the Old Testament, uh, they anointed. Samuel anointed David. Why? Because David was a king. Aaron anointed the priests. Why? Because they were priests. Prophets were anointed. And all that means is they were set apart for a peculiar service. So anointing oil was placed on them. And as you know, in Exodus, they're told, uh, Moses is told very explicitly how to mix this anointing oil for the priests. It was to have a special fragrance, be of a special content, because it was used for sacred use. And it set people apart for sacred purpose. So we have in the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings who were anointed. And they, we had in the Old Testament what you might call in American politics, separation of powers. If you were a priest, you were not to be a king. If you were a king, you couldn't pretend like you are a priest. And there was a king that thought he could be a priest and he ended up with leprosy. So you don't merge, mix these offices. You keep them separate with separate people who perform specific tasks until Jesus comes. And Jesus was anointed. He was the prophet. He was the greatest prophet ever. He spoke truth. He believed truth. He lived out truth perfectly. But he was a priest. And not only was he a priest, but he, he was the sacrifice the priest offered. So he was anointed to be a priest. And lo and behold, he's anointed to be a king. He, he says, he's asked by Pilate, are, are, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But he's a king. So Jesus is the ultimate anointed one who combines these offices legitimately for the first time. He is the anointed one. And, of course, Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointing. So to be Messiah is to be the anointed one. That's what Jesus is. Now, here's what we learn from the Bible. You're anointed too. You say, really? Yeah. Prophet, priest, and king. Every one of you who are in Christ. Why? Because you're in Christ. When you're in Christ, you share those offices. So, therefore, you have the anointing to go out into the world and proclaim the truth, just like a prophet, just like John the Baptist. You have the truth, and you've been given a commission to go into all the world and make disciples. That's a prophetic anointing. You have the truth. Secondly, you're a priest. You say, really? I thought the guys would turn around collars. We're the priests. No, you're the priest. And you're the ones who pray for the world. You know, the priests were meant to pray. You're the ones who are bringing the people into the holy presence of God. That's what priests do. They represent the people. They go into the holy of holies, or the high priest goes in the holy of holies. The priests, regular priests go into the holy place, and they're gaining access for the people into the holy of holies. That's what you're doing. Paul says, as priestly service, I'm ministering to the Gentiles to bring them to God. Well, with your friends out there that you're evangelizing, you're bringing them to God. You're praying for them. You're evangelizing them. You're the mediator, if you will. You're offering priestly service by offering Christ to them, which is the great sacrifice that the priest would offer. 
It's a sacrifice of atonement. You're offering it through sharing Christ. So we have a priestly uh, role in the world. Furthermore, you're a priest because, as James says, confess your sins to one another. So you're listening to each other's confessionals and you are assuring them of their forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is what brothers do. They, they listen to each other and assure each other of forgiveness. We have all these priestly functions. And you're kings. You're meant to go out into the world and rule and govern. You know, when we were created in Genesis 2, we were made to rule over the earth. We were the vice regents of God Himself. And He's restoring that very function for us. Ultimately, when we get to heaven, we'll be ruling the universe with Him. We'll be in the royal family. We are the rulers. We are the kings. So even now, we look at a society, our society, that's so ripped and torn and divided and corrupted, and we're saying we're salt and light, and salt and light goes out to find ways to rule benevolently on behalf of the people. So of course we care about civil society. Of course we care about politics. And it's not just so that we can protect our stuff or that, you know, pick one of the parties that you think promotes your best self-interest. No, that's not it. We're engaged in politics and engaged in civic life to rule benevolently, to seek to bring transformation and change in the entire environment around us. We're kings. And we've been anointed. Now, some of you may have been anointed with oil from time to time, but what John's talking about is you have been anointed with the same anointing that Jesus has, and it wasn't oil. It was that which oil represented, the Holy Spirit Himself. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we're told that Jesus was anointed beyond measure. He had the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Well, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost. You've been anointed, washed, filled with the Holy Spirit. And He's the one who makes you prophets, priests, and kings. You have the anointing. And notice in that verse 20 that you all have knowledge, which leads us to be. They know the truth. They have this spiritual anointing, which enables them to know the truth like a prophet of God. I write to you, he says in verse 21, not because you do not know the truth. I'm writing to you because you do know it. I'm reminding, me, I'm reminding you of who you are. I'm reminding you of, of what you know. And Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, I've mentioned two or three verses there, where he says to them all over and over again, he says, I'm, I'm, going, I'm departing from you in order to send you one who will be with you always and who will lead you into all truth. And he will remind you of what I said to you. He'll lead you into future truth. The Holy Spirit. So when Jesus departed from the disciples, which made them very sad, didn't make him sad because he knew he was going to the right hand of the Father so that with the Father he would pour out the Spirit upon his disciples and they would know the truth. Now, we know the truth by figuring out which presuppositions we're going to accept. Let's think about ge geometry for just a minute. In geometry, how many axioms do you have to, to work geometry? You remember? Four, five, or six, I don't know. There's some fundamental axioms like, you know, the shortest, point between, the shortest distance between two points is a line, straight line, right? So that's an axiom in geometry. You can't do geometry without that. So there are, you, you figure out what your non-negotiables, your axioms are, and then you begin to deduce 
geometry as you logically draw inferences from combining these axioms. And that gives you geometric truth. There's a sense in which you do that with life truth. You figure out what your axioms are. For example, my axioms are God is and the Bible is His Word. Those are my two axioms. And from those axioms, I deduce all the truth that renders life and godliness. So that's the way that we think. We, we think from axioms. Now, that, that's the way we think logically. Any, you know, in your business, you have your non-negotiables, your axioms, and then you deduce from that how you're going to run your business. And it's the same way with life. But what John is saying, there's another element here. There's a mystical element. There's a, there's a God element that's beyond just mere human rationality. It does not contradict what I just said. But it empowers and enlightens and clarifies what I'm saying. And he says what you have is not only a revelation in the Bible and a human mind that can draw inferences unlike the rest of the animal kingdom. You can actually draw inferences from the Bible. But he's saying you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got God Himself who personally is leading you to this truth so that you recognize axioms in the first place. You ask me, where did you get your axioms? That God exists or God is and the Bible is His Word. Where would you get those? From the Holy Spirit. I mean, I was taught that and I was shown why that makes sense. And, and Paul says you can't look at the creation without inferring a creator, unless you're an idiot. Uh, so logic is there, but ultimately, philosophically, I can't prove those two things to you. I receive them. So I receive them how? In the Holy Spirit. God Himself enables me to receive these obvious truths as axioms. And then, let me show you what else He does. He shows me that the teachings of the Bible are true. Now, they, they logically, if you're a logical man, you'll believe that they're true because they all cohere inherently. But the Holy Spirit transcends that and sheds light on your mind so that you can believe with conviction the obvious things of the Bible. You say, well, how does that help me? Well, would you please look around? People are so confused sexually, they don't even know what hole to stick it in. I mean, it's unbelievable what's out there. People can't see, they can't think straight. They've got everything confused and turned inside out and upside down. Why? The absence of God. As Solzhenitsyn said about 20th century Russia, they forgot God. And that's exactly what's happening to us. You lose God as the center, and you lose God as the personal power who enlightens your mind to see reality. And you're going to be in a real mess, and that's where we're headed, unless God revives us. So... They have the anointing. It leads them to truth. You have the truth. And truth is a deeply spiritual experience. Don't take it lightly. If you can think straight, if you can embrace creation's axioms, if you can embrace God as a being who is and rewards those who diligently seek Him, if you can embrace the Bible as the Word of God, gentlemen, don't take that lightly. Someone's been very kind to you. He's anointed you with the Holy Spirit. That's what John is saying. That's how you get there is by God's gift of himself. 
investing in you, living in you, drawing you into union with Him. That's how you know the truth. And all other truths emanate from that truth. So John is saying they have the anointing, they know the truth, see. That means they recognize lies. So when you have the truth, you recognize the opposite. People are so confused about sexuality and about what marriage means and they're confused about how to behave themselves in public and how to disagree with people. They, they are all confused about that because they don't hold to the truth. When you hold to the truth, you can see deception and lies, you know, white lies, black lies, whatever, gray lies, whatever kind of lies you want. You recognize them immediately. I remember in the old days... Uh, hearing a, a, a bank teller say that someone had asked her one time, well, how do you tell the counterfeits? How do you know that something's counterfeit when you're counting money so fast? She says, it's amazing. When you're counting money, if you've been counting money for years and you hit a counterfeit, you, you immediately feel it. Now, in these days, I know things are more sophisticated. You've got to put it up to the light, you know, and see if everything's there. But in the old days, you could feel it in the paper. You know, when you've been dealing with the truth and you've devoted yourself to it, you don't have to worry. When the, when the lies come, when something comes that's going to lead you or somebody else away from Christ, away from His people, and away from eternal life, you'll know it because of the Holy Spirit living in you. It, it offends Him. And the one living in you is personally offended by these lies that take people away from their relationship with Him. And you'll sense it. In fact, you'll feel, it'll, it'll be almost a somatic experience. Your, your passions will rise. You'll find yourself, your, your blood pressure will go up. You'll feel it. When the Holy Spirit in you, when He is offended by something that's contrary to the word that He inspired, He living in you will cause you to share the offense when you're counting regularly His word and His truth. Well, notice that the, the Apostle John goes on to say, here's what liars do. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 22a. He says, who are the liars? But the ones who undermine who Christ is. Christ is the center of everything in the universe. You realize this. He is the glue that holds the universe together. And the, the big lie is to deny Him who is the essence of everything. It, to, to deny Him is to, or, or to, to hold to the lie is to look at the stars in the sky and try your dead-level best to come up with some theory for how the stars got there without Jesus. That's a huge, that's the big lie. It's to remove Christ from the center of everything. It's to deny His Lordship. That's the big lie. And it's going on everywhere. And he says, look, number two, liars also deny the Father. There are some people who think that they can deny that Jesus is the Christ and still hold on to God the Father. And John is saying, some of you have gotten really sentimental. You love your neighbor. You like your neighbor. You don't want to be separated from your neighbor. And so when they tell you that, yeah, they love God, they just don't believe in Jesus, you accept that as acceptable doctrine. He's saying, how can you do that? To believe in Jesus Christ is to have the Father. Jesus prayed this way before His Father. He prayed for our eternal life. And He says, and this is life that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one that you've sent. That's it. That's life. 
If someone doesn't have Christ, I don't care what kind of religious tradition they have. I don't care what kind of business ethics they have. As good as they may be, they don't have life. And so for our Muslim friends, our Jewish friends, our Mormon friends, please love them like friends. Give every opportunity if they'll take it to have life. And without Christ, they deny the Father. Jesus said, I'm the, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So you can create some other God. And that's what the Quran leads one to. It's another God. It's not the same God. And, and you, can, you can create another God, and then you can tell me you have a relationship with him. But you do not have a, God, the, a relationship with the God of the Bible apart from a saving relationship through Jesus Christ. Now, that's what John is saying. And so I just find a lot of times with, with sweet Christian men, sometimes their kindness turns into sentimentality. And sentimentality is not love. You may as well hate somebody as to sweetly pat them on the back on their way to everlasting perdition. Let's be real about what life is. Let's realize these are the boundaries, the doctrinal boundaries that were given to us. We didn't make them up. They were given to us. And we're called to live in them. And if you don't like them, something's wrong with your heart. Get your heart right. And what you'll find is these boundaries are the same boundaries as love. God is love, John says in chapter 4. He is love. That's the reason for the boundaries. We've got to live in them doctrinally. Doctrine is important. Now, let's go to Roman numeral number 3 in the, in the nine minutes we have left. And here's what he's saying. He, he's saying not only will you stand firm because of the one who lives in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the truth that is in you obliterates the lies that are in the world. Uh, as Matthew Henry said on one occasion, Christ's doctrine is the devil's destruction. So the truth that you have destroys the kingdom of the evil one. It does. It causes him to vanish. And that's the reason that liars will leave your church. When you live out like a gentleman, you live out lovingly what the truth is, and then whatever authorities you've been given, you exercise your authority to discipline the environment that you're living in, in a gentle way, but in a truthful way. You'll find that darkness flees. They, they, they left us because they were never part of us. But now he wants to give an exhortation. He says, God has done something for you, but there's something you must do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying believers must abide. And the word abide means to remain. And you know John uses that, that word and that concept in John 15 in particular. And let's just see what he's saying here. He says, first of all, you must abide in the gospel. Or if you want to say, must abide in the scriptures. Must abide in the apostles' doctrine. You're not going to be able to tell a counterfeit, and you're not going to have the courage to oppose it unless you're remaining in the scriptures. The scriptures are your food. How would you think that you could go run a marathon if you don't eat anything for three weeks? You're not going to. You're not going to get past the first few steps. If, if you're refusing yourself food, you're not going to have the strength to run the marathon. Same way in the spiritual life, brothers. If, if you're not taking in the Scriptures regularly and abiding in them, living in them, remaining in them, the Word in you and you in the Word, there's a, an organic relationship here with you in the Bible. It's a book. You say, how can I have an organic relationship with a book? 
Because I'm not talking about the book. I'm talking about the word that's in the book. It's the word of truth that, that is alive. It's Christ is the word incarnate and he's speaking to you. This is his voice. As J.I. Packer said, the Bible is God preaching. So you open the book and you're reading it. It's God talking to you. You have a relationship with him. That relationship's got to be there. The way that you know truth and falsehood is because you know the one who is the source of all truth. You have a personal relationship with him and you happen not only to like him, but to love him and to be completely devoted to him. Now you'll know truth and falsehood when you've got that going. So you're abiding in the scriptures. He said, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did they hear from the beginning? The apostles' doctrine, the core of which was the gospel. So go back to what you heard. Go back to what's in the Bible in this fundamental teaching. What did the apostles tell us? Base your life on it. And that's the way a real classicist will approach anything. You go back to the classical literature. There will always be scholastics who come after the classics who will try to interpret the classic for you. And they're helpful. I'm glad to have the scholastics. But get me back to the classic. And the Bible is the classic Word of God. It's the pure Word of God. And you have many commentators, many teachers, but you only have one Bible. Get back to it. Now notice what he says here in verse 25. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Gentlemen, this is what is at stake. Eternal life. So in case you think I'm just being some ranting preacher, who gets all carried away with Christian doctrine. I'm, I'm carried away because I love you. And you're carried away because you love the people you know and the people you influence. We're trying to get people home safely. That's our job here. Otherwise, just go on. But if you're staying here, then your job is to get as many people home safely as you can. And that's the way you do it. He, look at the words here. He says, and this is the promise. And he gives us eternal life. And life comes in Christ. And Christ is received by the reception of the Word. And this is the reason the Word and all of its implications are very important for us. Once again, there are these outer boundaries. But when you feel people sneaking their way over to the edge of the precipice, you need to be alarmed. You're teaching and correcting all the time before they get to the edge of the precipice. So somebody tells you they don't believe the Bible, you go back and show them why they should believe the Bible. You're dealing with things. You're developing people. Now, secondly, notice that he says believers must abide in their anointing. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment. You say, golly, I've been here for 22 years, and all, and all that time John tells me I shouldn't have been here. I don't have anybody who needs to teach me an amen Bible study. Why am I listening to teachers? Well, in Ephesians 4.11, I've given that text there, it's both at the same time. Look, we use means. We listen to teachers. But you listen to your Amen Bible teacher like this. Tell, tell me, you, you tell me what you think this says. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to listen to you and see if I believe you're teaching me according to this. That's the way Bible's listen, uh, Bible students listen. You remember that the Bereans, Paul said, were noble because they examined everything by the Word of God. So the Christian listener always listens with the Bible right in front of him and asking the Holy Spirit to help him discern whether what he's getting 
is consistent with what God has put in his heart and put here in this book. That's the way we listen. We abide in the anointing. We're abiding in the Spirit. So when you prepare your lesson for your small group or Sunday school class, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. You have the anointing. Abide in that anointing. Trust Him. Just like you trust Jesus on Calvary's cross to forgive your sins, trust the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth and ask Him for help. It's a spiritual thing to obtain and to deliver truth to other people. So abide in the anointing. And lastly, basically the ultimate issue, brothers, is to abide in Him. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now I mentioned here, of course, the classic verses where Jesus taught about abiding in John chapter 15. And what's the analogy He uses? It's the vine and the branches. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. So if you want to bear fruit as a branch, you don't go, ah, I'm going to struggle, get that fruit out. No, Jesus says it's real simple, you abide in the, in the vine, you stay connected to the vine. And when you do, you will bear fruit. You will. If you'll look to Jesus Christ for your strength, if you'll treat Him as the analogy demands that we trust in Him personally, we're organically connected to Him, we're in union with Him, in fact, we're part of Him. The vine doesn't disclaim branches. No, the vine claims the branches as its own. We're, we're part of Jesus' work in this world. He has filled us with Himself, with the Spirit of God. So we abide in Him. We're conscious of this all the time. We're thinking about living in Christ and Christ living in us. We're thinking about that dominant relationship. It's like if, if, I, if I go to a room full of women instead of men, well, no matter whom I'm, with whom I'm speaking, I'm speaking as a married man. I'm Allison's husband. And every woman I talk to is a woman who recognizes I'm a happily married man and Allison is my wife. And that's the, I live that out. I'm thinking about that all the time. I, I'm acting as Allison's husband. I'm sorry, I said wife. I'm acting as Allison's husband wherever I go. Well, how about you? You're Christ's bride wherever you go. That's who you are. You wouldn't think of crossing that line. You wouldn't think of seducing somebody else or being seduced. You're His bride. Abide in Him. Contemplate Him. This is where the anointing comes from. So we abide in the apostles' doctrine in the Word of God. We abide in the Holy Spirit. We abide ultimately in Jesus Christ. And gentlemen, if I were to summarize 22 years of teaching in this place, that's what I would say. It's all about Jesus. It's all about your relationship to Him. If you'll stay close to Him, close to Him, abide in Him, you'll find that everything we've talked about for 22 years will just pop right out. It's right there. It has become intuitive to you. You know why? You have the anointing. You have Jesus Christ. To His name be glory and praise and dominion and power forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thank You, Lord Jesus Christ, that You with the Father sent Him in fullness to us. And we pray that You will enable us to open our hearts to the fullness of the deity living within us. That we will enter into this communal life with the Trinitarian Godhead, 
and live our lives in light of who we've been made to be as the little Christs, the little anointed ones through whom you are still working in a broken and sinful world. Help us, we pray, to know the difference between the truth and the lie. Help us, we pray, to use our influence to make these divisions clear so that others will get home with us at the end of the day. We pray now that as we leave this place, your power and blessing will go with us and we will be the salt and light you made us to be in this world. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys.